I was walking down the front steps of my house the other day, and I looked down, and uh, there were pumpkins uh, decorating our front stoop. And my first thought was, how did those get there? I don't know if, like, Cinderella put them there. That perhaps gives you an indication of who decorates around our house. It's not me. And I was walking down the steps, and I was walking down the steps because I was headed out to my car to get our Christmas tree. And I grabbed the Christmas tree, and I look back at the house, and I see these pumpkins, and I think, man, it was just Halloween. And then it was also just Thanksgiving. And now I'm carrying a Christmas tree into my house. I mean, all of these things are passing us by so fast. I don't know who planned out kind of the schedule of these holidays, but it would have been really nice if we could have taken maybe one of these things and placed it at the end of February when we're all depressed in the rain and the darkness. But these holidays, they pass quickly in front of us. Each and every year, it's easy just to go through the motions and this morning, we begin a new sermon series entitled Lessons in Carols as we reflect and celebrate the season of Advent. You know, Christmas carols can be just another one of those things that pass over us through the holidays without much thought or reflection. Over the speaker at the grocery store, we hear the Rat Pack singing these very carols. We've heard them over and over but have we really heard them? So the idea here in this series is to slow down and to listen to the lessons within these carols. There is a rich history behind each of these carols, a history that most of us are not probably familiar with. The creators of VH1 behind the music were inspired by the question, whatever happened to, whatever happened to Vili Millie Vanilli, or whatever happened to MC Hammer. Now, we're not going to be studying any carols or songs by those artists, but the sentiment is the same. What's the story behind these songs? And what implications does it have for our life with Christ, especially during the Advent season? O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is our song this morning. And let me begin by giving you a bit of historical context, and then we'll dive into the implications. The origins of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel date back to the 6th century of the church with a man named Ancius, Manlius, Severinius, Bothius. Now, man and I considered naming our son that very name, but we thought, man, Jude in the end might work better for middle school. Bothius was born just after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire. He was a senator, a historian, a philosopher of what's considered the early Middle Ages. He was responsible for translating a number of Greek classics into Latin and is credited with preserving the work of Aristotle into the age of the Renaissance. He was also one of the foremost Christian scholars of his time. At the age of 44, he denounced corruption amongst other members of the government, which time period landed him in jail. It's there that he wrote his now famous work on the consolation of philosophy. It's interesting to note that many Christian saints wrote their most poignant works while in prison. Think not just Bothius, but think John of the Cross, think Martin Luther King Jr. 
Boethius eventually in prison was tortured. He was executed. Today he's considered a martyr for the faith in the church. Six, we named a crater on the moon in his honor. It's in his prison work on the consolation of philosophy that Boethius references what's called the Great Advent Antiphons, which are short verses or songs in miniature that are sung or recited in worship, much like the plain chant that Alex sung earlier in service. It's this particular set of antiphons that originated before or during Boethius' lifetime and were eventually sung in monasteries at evening services during Advent between December 17th and December 23rd. There are seven antiphons in total, all with Latin titles. And we have a slide that shows the list of these starting on December 17th all the way through December 23rd. And as you hopefully can see, if we can get that slide up, um, you will see the Latin titles there on the left. In the parentheses are the translated titles in English. You can see that the Latin phrases form the basis for the lyrics that we find in the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The first letters of the titles from last to first form a Latin acrostic, eros, cross, which means tomorrow I will be there, which highlights the theme of the antiphons as well as O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. When you reverse the acrostic and you play it backwards, it reveals the location of Noah's Ark. Sure. So I want to make sure you're following this history lesson. Okay. Everything else is true, not that. This song was eventually translated uh, into English by John Mason Neal, an Anglican minister in 1851. He republished it 10 years later in his book, Hymns Ancient and Modern. And that version found in that work is the one that we sing today. The song is a metrical hymn, which means that it can be paired with a number of tunes. I know nothing about music. I found that in research. But the one that we use, the tune that we use, it comes from a 15th century processional chant used at Christian funerals in France. This fact was discovered by British musicologist Mary Berry while digging around the National Library of France in 1966. As you can see, O come, O come, Emmanuel, declares the hope of the gospel when life has failed us. In seasons of exile. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. And so now we begin seeing that the lyrics make sense in light of the song's history. You can imagine old Boethius walking around his prison cell, singing these antiphons as he faced certain death for pursuing and upholding God's justice in the sector of government. With the collapse of the Western Roman Empire in the 5th centuries, we know that monasteries played a critical role in preserving culture stabilizing society through the Middle Ages. And this was a song sung when all of civilization had fallen apart. The song is set to a funeral tune and yet declares the hope of Christ. Tomorrow I will be there. 
What is your ex? Maybe life is failing you in your relationships, in your career, in the dreams that you had for yourself, the plans that you made, the health issue that has left you isolated, the sorrow that you feel over the conflicts in Ukraine and Gaza, the fear you have about the next election cycle. All of us have these seasons of exile. And while O Come, O Come, Emmanuel developed over time within history, it's ultimately set in the context, the biblical context, of Isaiah chapter 7. So we're going to look a little bit more closely at that and the implications for our life with Christ as you look at this song that declares the hope of the gospel when life falls apart. First, what we see in Isaiah chapter 7 through the lyrics of this song is that when life fails us, it's important to know the true identity of God. The true identity of God. At the mention of the name Emmanuel, we go back into the history of Israel, specifically in the days of the prophet Isaiah. You know, this fall up until Advent, we've been looking at the book of 1 Samuel, which describes the emergence of the monarchy in Israel. First with Saul, then David, Solomon, and so on. With David in particular, God establishes a covenant in the reign of his heirs. We find this covenant specifically in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Let me read that to you because it's important in discovering the true identity of God, who he reveals himself to be. God told David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will punish him with a rod such as mortals use, with blows inflicted by human beings. But I will not take my steadfast love from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Notice how God describes himself and his relationship with David and his heirs. I will be a father to you, and you shall be a son to me. In Isaiah chapter 7, God's fatherly identity is on full display. Shortly after the reign of David's son Solomon, the kingdom of Israel, which had been so united under David's leadership, it split into two kingdoms around the year nine times that split between the northern and the southern kingdom, it felt like a cold war. At other times, it felt like a civil war. As we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 7, it's one of those times of civil war. In Isaiah 7, these two related kingdoms were reaching a breaking point. The two rulers of the northern kingdom, Rezin and Pekah, decide to mount an attack on Jerusalem. And in verse 2, we see the effect that this had 
on Ahaz, the king of the southern kingdom, the king of Jerusalem, God's city. The heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest before the wind. They were filled with fear, anxious every time a report came in from outside the city, uncertain of what the future might hold. Can you relate? What is it that is striking that kind of heart this morning that's causing you to shake like trees before the wind? And amidst that very fragile and vulnerable place, God comes to Ahaz. And notice how he responds in verse 4. Take heed, be quiet, do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Their plan shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. Man, we need to hear those words over our heart this morning. Take heed. Be quiet. Do not fear. Let not your heart be faint. I love that word for quiet in the Hebrew. It means to be at rest. God is coming to Ahaz. God is coming to us and say, let your heart be at rest. Because I am Emmanuel. I am God with you. He comes to Ahaz as a father. Almost like a parent consoling a child who's awoken from a bad dream in the middle of the night. Now, many of us have grown up with a picture of God who is either distant or apathetic to our situation. Or if we do sense that he's near, he's probably disappointed or upset with us. But know this, if you find yourself in Christ, none of that is true. You can know with certainty that God is with you. And that God loves you the same way that he loved his son, Jesus. All of that love, it belongs to you in his son. Jesus is Israel's ultimate and faithful king whom God would love. What is true for the king is true for the people. That's what we always see in Israel's history. What's true for the king is true for the people. And that's why Jesus in John chapter 17 says this. I made your name known to them, talking about the name of the Father, and I will make it known so that the love which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. We are guaranteed of the heavenly Father's affections. Because of who Jesus is for us. The love of God the Father given through the Holy Spirit is what carried Christ through the exile of death on a cross. And amidst our own exile, the love that he has for the Son is the love that he has for us. And that's really important to understand, to ascertain. In these seasons when life is failing us. Secondly, when life fails us, 
we are invited to a trusting faith. We're invited to a trusting faith, and this is what's really difficult for each and every one of us. This is what was really difficult to Ahaz. God clarifies it in verse 9. If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. But notice God invites Ahaz not to a blind, but a concrete faith. A lived faith. A real faith. A faith that unfolds amidst real world action in our life. You know, what would it be like to know everything that would happen in your life? Would you really want to know all of your future? I was pondering that this week as I was meditating on this passage. And looking back on my life, I would not want to know everything that would unfold. It probably would have just seemed too challenging, too utterly overwhelming. Instead, what we find here is that God invites us, as my mentor would describe it, to God's faint path. While we can't see the whole of the journey that's in front of us, God's light illuminates the two or three steps that are right there in front of us. God calls Ahaz to faith, but he also offers him a sign, a small little trusting step. A step that would engender the courage of faith that God knew Ahaz needed. Essentially, God is saying, Ahaz, I know it might seem unbelievable that I would deliver you from this pending invasion. So think of a sign, any sign that I could give you right here, right now, that could help you believe. And just a moment ago, I noted the distortions that we hold. Sometimes we sense that he's distanced from us or he's disappointed with us. Well, we can act the same way back toward God. We can be distant and disappointed with him. We can be distant. We read the pages of scripture. We come across the stories of great miracles. But in our Western minds, we think that's just ancient magic sort of stuff. Now, we're children of the Enlightenment, children of the Reformation. We don't want to expect anything too out of the ordinary. Just let's read the Bible, let's grit our teeth, let's trust in the promises. So we become disappointed in God. God's probably not going to show up like this in my life. And so what do we do? We just decide to handle things on our own. We end up living like orphans instead of daughters and sons of the great high king. And as a result, we miss the signs. Offered to Ahaz, it wasn't the full view of all of his life. It wasn't the solution to the problem per se. He didn't tell Ahaz anything necessarily about the future. It was just a small signal that would assure Ahaz that God was a faithful, loving, and ever-present father. And I wonder how we might be missing these small signs as we walk with God on this faint path of life. I experienced this this week in a powerful way in my discipleship group. I shared about something that was going on in my life, something that runs deep 
in my family's story, something that I've been trying to figure out in real time. And so I asked the guys in my group, am I crazy or am I thinking right about this thing? And as the guys responded, ministering to me over the whole issue, but it did assure me that God was Emmanuel. God with us. I love the words of Otto Kaiser in his commentary on Isaiah talking about this. The only way that we can have God is by relying on him and using him. For the only way it is possible to accord God's deity deity to him is by using him and risking one's life upon God's word by trusting his promises and obeying the revelation of his will. I love that. That as God shows up, we are to grab a hold of him in trusting faith. So here's what I love about the picture that's forming with Ahaz. The picture forming with us. Because God is our father through faith in his son, our heart can be at rest. And as we follow him, it is not a blind faith. But God ordinarily works through circumstance, relationships, ordinary events to call us along one, two, three steps at a time through these small signs. And while we can't see the whole of life and how it will unfold, God does illumine those next two or three steps. Will we trust in his leadership? And this is the prayer of verse 2. Of O come, O come, Emmanuel. O come, O wisdom from on high, who ordered all things mightily to us, and teach us in its ways to go. Third, when life fails us, it's important, it's really important to know that our greatest threat has been conquered. Our greatest threat has been conquered. So here's the choice of Ahaz. His kingdom, his life is being threatened. Will he trust God's word? Will he grab a hold of one of these signs? Or will he try to work things out his own way? And we find the answer in a very kind of cryptic way, verse 12 through 15. But Ahaz said in reply to God, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, that sounds like a really holy, pietistic sort of response. But it's actually a response that lacked courage, that lacked faith. Ahaz was unwilling to admit to God that he wanted to turn his own way. But God knew the truth. And so in verse 13, Isaiah said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary my God also? (laughs) Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the young woman is with child and shall bear a son and shall name him Emmanuel. And we know from the larger picture of the story given to us that unfortunately Ahaz chose to go it alone without God. And what he did is astonishing. Facing threats from his Jewish brothers and sisters in the north, he appealed to the king of Assyria for help. This is like bowing the knee to Vader 
Assyria is the death star of the ancient Near East. And to purchase the help of Assyria, Ahaz dismantled parts of the temple and took the silver and the gold and gave it to Assyria. Sure enough, within a few years, Assyria would be the first of several empires that would carry Israel away into exile. And isn't that how fear works in our life? We're called to sacrifice ourselves. We're called to sacrifice our faith and our trust in a loving Father with the hopes that some other But in the end, that fear carries us away into the exile of isolation, of addiction, of anger, of bitterness, of hopelessness. There's always a power behind the power. What we learn in this story is that the northern armies weren't the true threat to Ahaz. It was Assyria. And when you think about it, the true threat is not your vocation, It's not your relationships. It's not our shared socio-political situation. Our truth threat is death. Yes, death literally itself, but also the death that we fear of our dreams, the death of our identity, the potential death of peace between people around the world. It begs the question, If only someone could conquer the power behind the power, maybe things would be different. And this is the Lord's promise given through Isaiah, the young woman with child. No one knows who this woman was in the time of Ahaz, and in his time, her identity is not critical. For Ahaz, it's a sign of judgment, but it's also a sign of hope. It's a sign of judgment because within a few years, Assyria would begin unprecedented desolation on Israel. This is the path that Ahaz chose in his fear. But this was because the Jewish writer Matthew in his gospel would use this verse to describe the birth of Christ. To Mary, the young woman with child. God never gave up on his people. God never gave up on his promises to David. But he faithfully established his kingdom in his son Jesus. And when that king appeared, he went to the cross and he died under the full weight of our sin, all of our alienation from God. And he conquered the power behind the power which is death itself. And when you make Christ your Savior, Savior, every existential threat to your life has been conquered. We no longer have any need for other saviors, whether that be our career, our reputation, land in Russia, land in Gaza. We follow Jesus. We know a peace, a quiet, a powerful hope not found anywhere else. And so we sing, O come, O bright and morning star, and bring us comfort from afar. Dispel the shadows of the night and turn our darkness into light. O come, O king of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. 
bid all our sad divisions cease and be yourself our king of peace. Let me pray. Almighty God, give us grace to cast away the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now in the time of this mortal life in which your son Jesus Christ came to visit us in great humility, that in the last day, when he shall come again in his glorious majesty to judge both the living and the dead, we may rise to life immortal through him who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.